Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents... It's one person coming in from China. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will. We're going to all be great. We're going to be so good. This is a pandemic. The Betches Sup Podcast. No, I don't take responsibility at all. Hello, and welcome to the Sup Daily Coronacast. I'm Sammy Fishbein, and the Coronacast is your daily rundown on of all the latest news on COVID-19, how we're getting through it, and just how close we are to ending this crisis. Let's get into it. Today, I'm here with Sarah Kenzior. Sarah is a writer, scholar, and the co-host of the podcast, Gaslit Nation. She's also the author of best-selling books, The View from Flyover Country, and as of this month, Hiding in Plain Sight. Released on April 7th, Hiding in Plain Sight is a history of the past 40 years of American decline that led us to a country dominated by a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government, and what this could mean for future generations. So an uplifting day. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, I am I am like truly your number one fan. Um, I wake up on Wednesdays ready to listen to Gaslit Nation. <laughs> oh, truly. thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so you've been you've you've had the podcast since uh, the beginning of the Trump administration or fairly early into it. Um, and your new book is such a success. I read it in a few hours. Um, it is such. It is just. I just want to congratulate you. It is so beautifully written. Um, the way that you sort of like interweave your personal story into you know the general themes of that we're all experiencing um, is really just. It's it's masterful, and I've been recommending it to everyone I know. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that so much. Yeah. So, for the benefit of the listeners who may not have read it or may not know. Um, too much about it. Can you tell us kind of like what your main thesis is in the book? Uh, Basically, it's the story of uh, corruption in America and how it's led us uh, basically on the precipice of an American autocracy under Donald Trump. And as you mentioned, um, it has kind of a memoir aspect to it. It's the story of my life growing up in a declining America. It's the story of the rise of Donald Trump uh, starting in the late 1970s. And it's the story of the social and economic and political conditions that made his rise possible. Um, There's a synergistic exploitative relationship at play, whereas America declined, Trump and his cohort, uh, which includes both American corrupt plutocrats, as well as transnational criminal operatives, Kremlin mafia associates, Kremlin actors, and so forth, they all were able to grab hold um, of this country and of uh, its institutions, gut them from the inside, and lead us uh, to this terrible point in time. Yeah. So when people ask me what this is about, I'm like, it just explains why everything has happened, how it happened for the past several decades, even before we were born and why the world is as it is, as we know it. So one of, I think, the biggest myths that people kind of believe about the Trump administration is that he came onto the scene and was like, you know, just a crapshoot kind of politician. Like it was all just like instinct that led him here. And and it was kind of like a fluke. But in your in your book, you really, you know, theorize that this started decades earlier. So when did all of this, when were the seeds planted for all of this? When did these 
and, and you speak a lot about how the major players involved in the Trump administration are actually, you know, they go way back. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, you know, Trump was presented by the mainstream media as this fluke, as a political neophyte, as someone who sort of stumbled his way into the presidency. That's not true at all. He ran or almost ran for president five times. Uh, the first time was 1988, then um, almost ran in 1986, ran in uh, 2000, ran in 2012, finally won the presidency in 2016. He was backed at all of these junctures by Roger Stone, his long-term advisor. Roger Stone, of course, was a partner of Paul Manafort going back to the early 80s when they ran a group nicknamed the Torturers Lobby, um, you know, which were, they were GOP operatives, but they were also hooked up to the seediest, worst elements of organized crimes and autocracy around the world. They were protégés of Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was a mafia lawyer. He was Joe McCarthy's lawyer uh, and also somebody very heavily insulated into the New York uh, elite media and political scene for decades. He's someone who is known for attack tactics, lying, blackmail, bribery, and he was also Donald Trump's mentor. He brought them all together. And from the 1980s on, in a sort of network that seemed to really arise starting in Iran-Contra, uh, which is also when Bill Barr and others enter the picture, they have been uh, basically doing a couple things like involved in, you know, strip downs of various countries following the collapse of the Soviet Union and globalization. Uh, they have close relationships with oligarchs. You know, they work directly with oligarchs and with mafia actors. They're tied to the Russian mafia, in particular, um, Semyon Mogilevich, the head of the Russian mafia. Um, you know, I described this very complicated network in the book. But one thing everyone should know about it is that I'm not the first person to bring this information to light. In 2011, Robert Mueller gave a speech called The Evolving uh, organized crime threat in which he laid out these networks, in particular Mogilevich, and said that this poses an incredible threat to Western democracy because organized crime, state corruption, and uh, white-collar crime had merged into a new entity that could transcend borders. Trump and his whole crowd, Kushner, Manafort, Stone, all of them, they are uh, key actors in this network, and they've brought the GOP along for the ride. The GOP sees Trump as a vehicle where they can pass terrible policies that they have been trying to implement since the 1980s under Reagan, gutting government, letting corporations thrive, not caring if ordinary people live or die. That's been the story of America for the last 40 years. It's so true. Um, so you, so Robert Mueller, you mentioned in, in 2011, gave this speech essentially laying out what's happening now, how basically all these criminal behaviors of people who are in the government, semi in the government, ended up in the government through the Trump administration, or are Republicans who take dirty money and then basically legislate according to that um, and are forced to legislate according to that because now they've taken this money. Mm -hmm. um, why, when Robert Mueller was given this opportunity, what do you think is like the, what stopped him from speaking out about this? Yeah, that's a great question. And it extends to why is he not speaking out now? Because he obviously knows quite a lot. Uh, he wrote an extensive report, was reluctant to testify, had to be subpoenaed, that got delayed. He ran a bad probe. Uh, a lot of people blame Bill Barr. Uh, I also blame Bill Barr for lying about the Mueller report, uh, saying that it said things it didn't. Um, and then the media ran with that and they knew that that's what the media would do. But the probe was screwed up from the start. Uh, he gave people like Flynn these plea deals that went absolutely nowhere, refused to really 
really interrogate or indict obvious criminal elements like Jared Kushner, like Trump himself. Um, it, to me, it seemed almost like a holding pattern that Americans were put in where they were believe, you know, believing that Mueller will save us and that there's this secret deep state. There's a lot of propaganda put out about that. There was, you know, the steady state editorial in the New York Times and just all these quote unquote legal experts going on TV and kind of baselessly assuring people this. And I'm not saying all those people were in on it. I genuinely think they thought that Mueller was going to do something about this incredibly obvious criminal network who kept doing things like confessing their crimes on TV. You know, Trump confessed to Lester Holt that he had committed obstruction of justice. You have Donald Trump Jr. tweeting out these emails. You have emails from Felix Sater and Michael Cohen, who was indicted, saying, yeah, we're rigging the election with Putin. We're going to get Trump in office. This is all in the public domain. So I'm like, you know, Mueller doesn't need a lot to bring these guys down. And I think that uh, a lot of legal experts believe that as well. What he did need was will. He needed courage and he needed institutional support. He didn't seem to have any of that. And I personally don't fully understand how you could just sit there and let people suffer in the conditions that we're in when you have the opportunity to at least try to bring some accountability to the situation. I don't understand how you can't tell the truth. Others have sacrificed their safety, put themselves at risk to tell the truth. We saw that in the impeachment hearings. I think he's a weak-willed man. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a frustrating situation. My view on this is always like, there is never a bad time to tell the truth. You know, better late than never. So for the, uh, you know, Mueller acolytes out there, maybe push him in that direction. I would love to hear more from him. I, I don't know. What is it? He doesn't want to face like the country club. Like, I, like what is it? I, I don't know. I mean, I've been debating this. I, I'm sure he's been threatened, but I'm kind of like, join the club. You know, I was yeah. threatened too. And I'm like living in Missouri with no money. And I also solved your crime. So like maybe you with your yeah. incredible network of resources and wealth could probably put some things together. I think that's part of it. But I do think some of it, it's like he's an institutionalist. And a lot of people saw that as a reassuring phenomenon. But when your institution, uh, you know, as special counsel, but previously as the head of the FBI um, from 2001, until 2013. When that institution is corrupt and is rotted from the inside, it can have tremendous force on you about what you are able to reveal. I think that Mueller, uh, you know, who did give the speech warning of this exact crisis in 2011, he was tasked with resolving this crisis with bringing people like Manafort, um, you know, to, to justice. And, you know, it's interesting to me that the uh, crimes for which Manafort was ultimately indicted took place in 2002 when Mueller was running the FBI. Like he had a decade to, to nail this guy. He didn't. And he became Trump's campaign manager. So a lot of this makes the FBI look really bad. It makes Mueller look really bad, but nonetheless, yeah, we need to have accountability. We need to have transparency. That's how to move forward, no matter what revelations, uh, you know, come about in that process. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. 
There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying. He loves airplanes. He loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So it's interesting you say you've you say you've been threatened and I've you know I've been listening to you for a while. I have a very distinct memory of you once telling this story about you and Andrea there was like a song that kept coming up on your on your iPod or your phone like whenever you would try to talk about something. Yeah. You can clarify. I don't want to like miss I don't want to well, put some words of that mouth. was also um you know so my co-host for, for Gaslit Nation for those who don't know is Andrea Chalupa. Um she's a journalist and a filmmaker. Her sister is Alexandra Chalupa and that's the name that Devin Nunes uh in his band of Republican freaks kept dropping at the beginning of the impeachment hearings as if somehow Americans knew who this person was. You know and they don't because Alexandra Chalupa was an independent researcher and an expert on Ukraine who knew about Paul Manafort because of Paul Manafort's activity working for uh, Kremlin-affiliated oligarchs in Ukraine and being involved um, you know, in dirty business in, in 2014 and beforehand. So when Alexandra found out that Manafort was Trump's campaign manager, she was deeply alarmed and started investigating this on her own. And so she was one of the first independent people to kind of just start digging around. And again, all this information was in the public domain. Like it was on Manafort's Wikipedia page. Like when I was, you know, the name Manafort was familiar to me too, because I had spent my life studying the former Soviet Union. So I was like, oh God, is it that Manafort? You know, so I'm going around looking too. All this was out there. There was no like illegal or kind of mysterious activity. Nonetheless, uh, the media did not want to cover it. The GOP did not want to have it exposed. And the Democrats uh, really didn't do a great job of bringing it to the fore either. So they saw her as a threat. And once Trump won, um, that was, or, you know, uh, was appointed. <laughs> that was a very dangerous time for us after the election, but before inauguration. Because I think that that was the period in which uh, possibly a lot of these facts, had they been brought to light, could have led to some reevaluation of whether, um, you know, this was a dire threat to our national security and our democracy. So they began threatening Alexandra. They had already been threatening her for half a year. Uh, they had been threatening me a little bit. It, it intensified tremendously, um, you know, the hacking, phishing attempts, phone calls, threats to physical safety. I describe in the book, I had to have a bodyguard in November 2016 when I was abroad in Denmark speaking at a media conference because of, um, you know, some of the attendees were connected to these Kremlin operations, connected to Breitbart, Cambridge Analytica, and so forth. Um, I mean, I didn't tell anyone about that for years because it's, it's honestly, it's very scary to have a bodyguard. It's scary to, to be that worried about your physical safety that people feel it's necessary. Um, but that's one of the most horrifying parts of the situation is the sense that we're alone in this. Like there's no one looking out for the average citizen. You know, Trump is out there putting a hit on the ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. Months later, people seem to have forgotten that testimony. Countless threats to officials uh, and to journalists. And people seem to just accept this as a fact of life. Um, but while it should be expected, you should never accept this as normal. This is mafia state behavior. 
so I mean, I remember here, like when you told that story. Um, for for me, who's most people I know would be like, oh, she's alarmist. She's like always looking into the the types of things about like kind of the way I have approached this. Um, but really, like hearing that from you, that was even quite alarming for me to hear that specifically some of the ways that they had. Uh, it seems like gotten access to your phones um, and knew like really what you were saying in the moment. Um, do you like, how, why do you feel like the media is so reluctant to convey the reality of what's going on to, to the American people? Like you're, you, I think have a very di different position in the media because you rely on public records. You're not reliant on access. You're mm -hmm. not worried about what, you know, Robert Mueller's friends at the country club will say if you are a little too honest about something. Um, so why do you think it is that the media is not just just constantly is distracted by the dumb tweets that he says and won't look into what he's really doing behind the scenes, even in this Corona situation? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And this problem uh, predates Trump's election. It was very evident during the campaign, but it even, you know, it's been a problem with Trump for decades. They have been whitewashing him. They have been propping him up as something that he's not. He is, uh, you know, a figure that's been involved in organized crime for a long time. I think as to why, uh, you know, the media hasn't risen to the task, it really varies uh, by outlet and by individual. I mean, first, there are some individuals who have been bringing the story to light, who have been following the money, who have done a good job. But I describe in my book how those journalists, uh, they were suppressed during the 2015-2016 campaign cycle. People who had done research on Trump going back decades, who had documented all of these nefarious uh, financial deals, they were not allowed on CNN. There were books pulled um, off of shelves, one of them by, by Harry Hurt III about Trump, written in 1993. He republished it as a Kindle book because he had to resort to that to get information out there. And part of this, you know, we know this. We, we know why. We see the threats. We saw Michael Cohen admitting under oath that he had threatened at least 500 people for Trump, among them journalists. There are, uh, you know, audio tapes of him threatening to destroy a Daily Beast reporter. And that is how they role. They threaten people, they bribe people. But I also think there's, you know, an element of careerism involved here where media has just been gutted over the last two decades. It's very difficult for people to make a living. It's hard for people to break into an industry that pays so low, that requires you to live in very expensive places like New York, work sometimes unpaid uh, as an intern and so forth. So you get this very kind of like elite nepotistic media in there. And they are people who have known the Trumps or the Kushners in real life on social occasions and so forth for a long time. And I think they don't want to bring, uh, you know, that kind of compromising information to the fore because one, they want that access. Some of it is just greed and careerism, but also these are people who threaten your family. They don't just go after you, they go after your relatives. So I think there's an element um, of fear to this as well. And yes, you know, living in Missouri, I'm an outsider of this situation. I'm also someone who spent my life uh, before covering Trump studying authoritarian states of the former Soviet Union. So I instantly recognized what this was because I'd seen this pattern before and most American journalists have not. You know, they assume this is a democracy. They assumed American exceptionalism was real. Uh, I never assumed that, so I saw it earlier. And that is true of so many others who spoke out, um, you know, Tim Snyder and so many other experts on the former Soviet Union, we all saw the same thing. And uh, other experts just on authoritarianism in general, we all were like, please listen to us. You know, US democracy is deeply vulnerable right now. 
um, people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear something that frightening. I think now they've kind of recognized that, that this is the case and that a savior isn't coming in, but it's not fun to listen to, but I'll just say it's even less fun to report on. So, Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you've mentioned that we could go into. I mean, I would love to go into like the Bill Barr of it all. How did he get from Iran-Contra to here? I mean, even like you speak about in, the, in your book, the whistleblowers, reality winner who's in jail for blowing the whistle on the treasury. I'm just giving the listeners like a, a skim because I really think that everyone should read it. But what I would love before we move on to the next topic, which is Trump's Corona response, for you to explain the phrase that you use all the time, that our country is dominated by a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. I feel like that is the, the essence of it all. Can you explain what that means in kind of like the easiest way possible for people to convey to others. Yeah, basically, uh, Trump and his cohort, Kushner and so forth, are linked to a very sophisticated organized crime network that now has infiltrated corporations, it's infiltrated governments, uh, and it's created a new kind of nexus of power and wealth in which countries are just viewed as things that are stripped down and sold for parts. They have nothing to do with representative government. They don't care what happens to everyday people in there. And what they also do is take over the institutions that enforce accountability. So that they can rewrite the law so that they can, you know, break the law and then have it not count for anything. That is what they've been working towards for numerous decades so that their power is just essentially unrivaled. And that's been uh, a very frustrating process to watch in the last three years because there's always a time frame for how quickly you can stop or how effectively you can stop these kinds of uh, organized criminal organizations. And because they weren't recognized as such, I think there's incredible timidity uh, in, in taking them to task. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, especially, I think the part that's hardest for people to wrap their minds around is that this transcends borders, oh, absolutely. that it doesn't matter if, if it's the Saudi Arabian dictator or if it's the Russian dictator, like it's, it's more about personal interest than it is about the country itself or who's leading which country. But I think that this is especially relevant, especially in the times we're living in now with coronavirus, this pandemic really provides an excuse and a, an opportunity for them to strip down America for parts without people noticing. So that's, I think, one of the most overlooked things by the media because they're too busy covering the fact that he's telling people to drink bleach, mm -hmm. which horrible, probably, they shouldn't have even been airing that uh, right. press conference to begin with. No one had to know he said that dumb ass comment. So what is he doing behind the scenes while we're all watching these circuses every evening. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that they're doing is trying to distract people and they're trying to convince people that this is incompetence and not malice, the same way that they cover up crime with scandal. That is a tactic. And so the people to watch here, I think, are the people who have lasted through the revolving door autocracy of this administration, which is people like Steve Mnuchin, uh, one of the few people to profit off the Bernie Madoff uh, crime scheme, and also somebody who is deeply tied to Russian oligarchs and is running the treasury. So whenever you make a deal with someone like Steve Mnuchin, when the Democrats do that, you are dealing with the Russian mafia. It's people like Kushner and Ivanka who are part of this aspirational dynastic kleptocracy where Trump and his cohort are just 
trying to make money off of catastrophe. And it's important to recognize that that is their guiding philosophy. It's not an accident. That is how Trump has responded to every crisis. When it was 9-11, he bragged that that the destruction of the World Trade Center made his buildings look taller. When it was 2008, he publicly declared, I'm excited about this. You know, I like it when, when markets collapse. And of course, in 2014, I keep playing this clip, he went on Fox News and said America would be great again when there was total economic collapse, riots in the street, desperation, and so forth. That's what makes a country great. You know, he's a product of this corporate raider culture in New York. You know, Carl Icahn was another one of his mentors, along with yeah. Mike Cohn, where they just, they think if you break it, then you can buy it at a cheaper price and make more money for yourself. And that's basically it. There are people surrounding him who are more ideologically, uh, you know, sophisticated in what they want, or they're better at navigating bureaucracy like Mitch McConnell. For Trump, it's, it's money, power, immunity to prosecution. He will absolutely use coronavirus to do this. He will use it, I think, to manipulate the election or even delay or cancel the election. Those are all worries that I have right now. Same. <laughs> Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same, with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. So I just want to dive into two more topics before we have to have to close this out. Um, one that I know our audience is highly interested in, and I was so thrilled to see that there was a whole chapter about this in your book, um, which is Jeffrey Epstein. I think a lot of us see the Jeffrey Epstein thing as like a sideshow, you know, an interesting scandal that is tied to Trump, but not, it, not as much as it is in reality. Um, please go into that. Yeah, Jeffrey Epstein is uh, deeply tied to Trump and tied to a number of powerful figures in the world. I started writing about Epstein uh, in this book in early 2019. And at first, there was some confusion from my editor, like, why is this guy important? What's his deal? Until he was arrested, and then until he, uh, you know, allegedly committed suicide. And then a lot was revealed about him. And it it was clear to everyone, I think, that I was basically looking in the right places. Uh, Short version, (laughs) sort of. Epstein uh, is connected to Trump in various ways. First of all, there is a 13-year-old girl in 1994, uh, you know, who as an adult claimed that Trump raped her. And this was a court case that there was documentation of for a long time. It was brought to light in 2016. She was going to have a 
a press conference about it until, again, she was threatened, her lawyer was threatened, and so that didn't come to light. They're also connected to Semyon Mogilevich, who I mentioned before, the head of the Russian mafia. He worked with a guy named Robert Maxwell, who was a UK publishing tycoon secretly working for Mossad, for Israeli intelligence, for his whole life. And so he began to form alliances with Mogilevich in the late Soviet period and helped him set up his criminal operation before mysteriously dying in a yacht accident in 1991. At that point, his daughter, Jelaine Maxwell, uh, goes into New York high society and becomes the partner of Jeffrey Epstein, the pedophile sex trafficker who had immersed himself in high society around the world, as did Jelaine Maxwell. You get, you know, Prince Andrew, Ehud Barak, Alan Dershowitz, and of course Trump. He, they were immersed in these circles. They appear to be uh, gathering compromising material for political control, basically blackmailing the wealthiest and powerful people in the world. The former uh, Department of Labor Secretary, Alex Acosta, said that Epstein worked for intelligence and therefore he couldn't be touched. He never specified whose intelligence. Epstein worked for. And so that's one of these questions. And again, you know, Epstein, there's this brief period. And I mean, I have to give total credit to Julie K. Brown and the Miami Herald, who really has done the deep dives on this. Most of the time, the media whitewashed Epstein the same way they whitewashed Trump. They presented yeah, him like as he's a some friend. brilliant, yes. brilliant guy. Brilliant, charming, a philanthropist, a fanatic. The worst thing about this is it was after he was arrested for pedophile sex trafficking, which happened in you know 2007, 2008. He got a very, very light sentence and was released and went right back into high society with Jelaine Maxwell. And he was welcomed by the elite of New York media and of government and all these others. That is just unbelievable to me. Like when I see these photos, they knew who he was. It wasn't a mystery, but he was, he was constantly presented as something he wasn't. And the same thing is true of Trump. And that is why the book is called Hiding in Plain Sight. It's just weird that people wouldn't be more embarrassed. Like, I can't put myself in the position of some of these people, but like, and what their interests behind the scenes might have been. But like, that's embarrassing. Like, this man is a pedophile. The the documents, the deposition of the girl who claimed she was raped by Trump. Anyone listening to this can read it. It's mm -hmm. public domain. Those depositions are out there. Simply Google them. I mean... My other question about him is like, why Jeffrey Epstein? Like, he seems like quite random if you actually like look at his background. And I, I don't really like why him and why did people like deal with this? Was it's it, do you think it was like a compromise operation for intelligence and that's why it was allowed to continue? Yeah, I think he was probably working for multiple intelligence agencies. And, you know, in reference to the transnational crime syndicate aspect, it's not clear he was working completely for a government as much as certain representatives of different countries that were immersed in organized crime operations that they wanted to continue to carry out. I mean, I think he had a, a like very- Like a mercenary pedophile ring. Basically, yeah. A lot of this is, is if you look at it as non-state actors or mercenaries, it makes a lot more sense. And the yeah. same thing is true of Jelaine Maxwell, uh, you know, whose whereabouts are still unknown. And you kind of look and you're like, well, why, why isn't anybody, you know, looking for her looking into this? You know, one thing that's weird about Epstein is he got his start by being hired by Bill Barr's father uh, to teach at Dalton, a, a very elite uh, girls high school in New York City, even though he had no college degree. And they kind of spun this, you know, he's a genius myth, but it's like, okay, it's a little weird. Meanwhile, Bill Barr was working for intelligence in the United States. And 
through his connections at Dalton, that is how Epstein got immersed into finance. He worked for Bear Stearns and into New York high society. So it was the Barr family that launched him as to why that happened. I mean, people won't touch this. They touch it fleetingly. You know, immediately after his death, there was this sudden flurry of stories where people came forward and they're like, yeah, I've been holding this inside for 10 years, 20 years. I'm now going to tell you what happened at Dalton. I'm going to tell you about my meeting with Jelaine Maxwell. It all came out at once. And then it abruptly stopped. And I think that there is some sort of intimidation tactic used to keep people from reporting about it because these are brutal people. You know, in my book, I describe all of these journalists and investigators who have looked into the Epstein, um, you know, Mogilevich operations. They got murdered, you know, or threatened, or they've just been intimidated into silence. So this is very risky to talk about. So this is some extent understandable, but I think it's very weird that the media will shy away from this to such a degree when it seems to be, you know, a focal point of explaining geopolitics of the last uh, 30 years, particularly the relationship between the U.S. and the former USSR. The weird thing, and I think you mentioned this, is that it's always a red flag when the media is is working against their own interests. And I know just from running a media company that's not even truly like a news outlet in the sense that you traditionally think of one, people are so interested in Jeffrey Epstein. Like even our audience who's, you know, some of them care about the news and some don't, all of them care about Jeffrey Epstein. So like, why is there not more about this it's it's very very sketchy, and I I think one of actually I think the the most underexplored individual or family in all of this is the Barr family. Oh, absolutely. There is no coverage of them. There, the day he got um approved, it was I remember that day well because I remember he got approved and there was some other huge scandal going on. And I was like, we're gonna regret that we just overlooked his approval. He's definitely gonna end up being a really bad guy, and it's true. Um, for some reason, he just gets like skated over, yet he has so much like raw power that he is willing to and competently and competently empowered to exercise. Yeah, so he's a very scary individual. To look at him critically, even though I mean, he was the Iran Contra cleanup guy. He was he was criticized by conservatives for this. Like he was so bad that even William Sapphire was like, "Whoa, you know, Bill Barr is nuts. Like, stay away from Bill Barr." In 1992, and then after that audition for the AG role, by saying yes, I will preemptively exonerate Trump and I will yeah. persecute any of his enemies, even if they didn't do anything. Like he openly said this in a letter. It should have been mysterious. They should have never confirmed him. I was you know very loud about this, but you know, no one listens to me as you. Usual. Um, but yeah, you know, back to what you said with Epstein that the media works against their own self-interest. Epstein at this point is like the glue holding Americans of different uh, political perspectives together. Everyone from the QAnon MAGA crowd all the way over to the left and everyone in between want to know the truth about Epstein and find him repulsive. Like there are very few Epstein defenders. The ones who are there are people working in the mainstream media who to this day keep calling him a philanthropist or a financier or refusing to dig into his past. You also see, you know, the Trump administration won't talk about this. Most people uh, like Prince Andrew and so forth, the royal family, others implicated, won't talk about it. Alan Dershowitz just says things like, well, I left my underwear on where you're like, you know, like, my like you didn't. You, so he, yeah, you were there. You left your underwear on. No, really awful. And you just said it. 
they just kind of act like, oh yeah, that, that's regular life. And I don't know whether there's some sort of giant cultural gulf between yes. the elite media and normal people where we find a pedophile trafficking operation repulsive and abhorrent and want it brought to justice and they just kind of shrug their shoulders and are like, yeah, no big. I mean, I, I do think there's an element of that and that, that's frightening, but I, I tend to think it has to do with intelligence, it has to do with espionage, it has to do with organized crime and an unwillingness to get in this. I mean, it's also a very frightening and, and depressing subject. That was a hard right. chapter for me to write, but I just think out of respect to the victims, Everyone should be looking at this because I doubt it stopped. There were predecessors for it with people also involved in Trump's network, like Roy Cohn, you know, is said to have had an operation like this. There was the Craig Spence case uh, from the George H.W. Bush era, which didn't make it in the book, you know, but anyway, another sex trafficking pedophile operation associated with the GOP. Like, it's a buried history, but it's all, you could find it all online and not in freaky sources, in regular, you know, court documents, outlets like the Washington Post, and so on and so forth. It's just funny that if you ever want to think about, like, what the Republicans are really doing, just look at what they're accusing Democrats of doing. Yes. Like, who came up with the pizza ring? Like, you, because you did it. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's, um, it, I, well, you mentioned you don't know if there's a cultural gulf or something else. I don't know if it's so much a cultural gulf as much as what you mentioned earlier, which is like careerism and like, oh, we're buddies. You can kind of like, you know, you see with the Me Too movement, hundreds of predators, whether they are, you know, whether it's for underage women or not, there, there's this sort of like, oh, he's my, he's nice to me. He can't be a predator. You know, he, you know, he's always been so respectful. It's like, okay, well, he, you know, assaulted somebody else. So you have to you know, are you going to take a stand against that or not? And I think it's really hard for people in a lot of, because they have their interests all tied up together. Yeah. No, that's, it's a very informative thing, I think, to look at Me Too and to look at kind of what's happened to it since, uh, you know, there's a period where it did seem like we would get real justice and accountability in a lot of these cases, but you just see the same men, you know, rehired and they have their comeback and they get these laudatory articles written about them while the women, you know, who they have locked out of careers, who they have harmed personally and professionally are still suffering. And so Epstein is kind of the ultimate manifestation of this process, but that is part, I think, of a, a greater problem. Absolutely. And just to just to get to our kind of, you know, last topic, um, which is the upcoming election um, and me too. So we're seeing um, allegations coming out slowly about um, a Biden accuser, Tara Reid. And I've literally never in my life um, felt like I've always felt, oh, you should believe and listen to accusers and hear and hear them out. And there's something very odd about this to me in the way it's come out some of the situations that she has found herself in and and no no victim is perfect and we should not be holding anyone to any high standard in that sense but the fact that she has written a glowing uh piece about how much she admires vladimir putin is a massive red flag that i think should be mentioned alongside any allegation um what do you make of this Yeah, that's a red flag to me, too. Um, I still think, you know, we should hear out. I don't think she should be attacked. I think that if people are going to criticize her, it should be only based on things that are in the public domain, you know, put out by her voluntarily. Um, You know, she should be respected, you know, as a a potential victim, um, you know, in that way. 
I'm watching it play out. Uh, You know, there is a record of Biden being inappropriate with women, um, you know, and I think, yeah, of course, it's possible that he did this. Um, I honestly don't know. But, you know, it is going to be exploited by the Republican Party and by Trump and by, you know, Russia for political gain. Uh, I think it's hard to tell, you know, why Tara Reid wrote that article. Like, maybe that's something she would want to explain more about. She's explained a little, um, but I'm mostly just just watching this unfold with like a, you know, ache in my heart and a, a pit in my stomach. Like Rebecca Traster from New York Magazine wrote a good article about this, about how it once again puts women in this horrible position where if the candidate is Biden, you know, running against Trump, like we don't get the choice of voting for someone who at the least did not engage in, in sexual harassment because there is a record for Biden with that. And it, it's just, it's a horrible feeling. You know, it's, it's an upsetting feeling. And I just keep thinking we could have had a different outcome. And it's so frustrating uh, that we don't. It just shows how much how much the country culture as a whole does not really value women. Not only can we not get a woman president elected um, due to obvious sexism, but yeah, even if even if this specific story about Tyra Reid isn't true, there have definitely been some allegations about him and inappropriate touching and whether he wants to write that off as like, oh, it was a different time. Okay, I think we deserve that. We deserve to be able to have an option of somebody who, who did it. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating, especially because it was such a, you know, a pretty good slate of candidates. I mean, I, I wanted Warren. I was same. open about that. that this, um, whole po- this podcast audience is I a still, very Warren yeah, audience. Yeah, I would love if Warren was in there. And, you know, what I think Biden needs to do, and I thought this well before the Tara Reid allegations came forth, he needs a coalition. He needs people behind him, you know, skilled, talented, on-the-ball Democrats, because this is, you know, one of the absolute worst times in, in American history, possibly one of the worst in world history. You know, we're in the middle of multiple intersecting catastrophes. We need the best people possible. It cannot be about a figurehead. You know, one thing that's bothered me so much about the last few years is, you know, Trump tries to build a cult around himself. And he has one, you know, and he has QAnon and all these assorted cults with their conspiracy theories. We have seen the same kind of thinking from the Democratic side, whether around Comey and then Mueller and then Pelosi. And then now the new savior is, quote, the 2020 election. And I think they're trying to produce that kind of effect around Biden. And it's a terrible idea because, first of all, cults in general, bad thing. These sort of personality politics, not helpful. You need to look at policies. And you also need a broad, inclusive coalition and to be able to examine your own flaws. And that's something that they should be doing. We don't need to put people on a pedestal. Public servants work for us. And we always need to, to hold them to account. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's it's really frightening that this is the leadership that we have, and I think it's pretty telling that people who it's interesting. I feel like people who would make the best leaders are reluctant to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think about that with like Sherrod Brown. He'd make yeah. such a great candidate, and he just I don't know why why not. Yeah, I think some of this, the process is so brutal. It's, you know, humiliating, threatening. And also, you know, Andrea and I have said on Gaslit Nation, the 2020 candidate is running against the Russian mafia. Whether they recognize that or not, that is the case. And I I would expect that anyone with, you know, I don't know, eyes and access to uh, the internet would recognize that. And maybe that played a role in the reluctance of people like Sherrod Brown to run. Um, You know, I, I don't think we got the best candidate we could have, but I still think that this sort of coalition 
coalition approach to politics is something the Democrats should embrace and not this kind of progressive versus centrist and so on and so forth. This is an existential threat. Like we need everyone possible with all their varied skills and abilities. Like there's not just one way of doing things. And I wish that folks uh, understood that, that we kind of need uh, everything, every mechanism possible at our disposal is one that we should use. I am totally with you. Um, and we will continue to see how it plays out. And I hope that I will be, I mean, I know that I will be listening to your podcast, but I hope that you will be able to continue to enlighten all of us as to what you're thinking, because you are definitely months ahead, months, if not years ahead of the game in this administration. And yeah, so where can, where can our audience, this has been such a great interview. Where can our audience follow you, get your book? I mean, Amazon, obviously. Um, yeah, the book is available anywhere. I, I encourage people to look for independent bookstores because they're really struggling okay. uh, to stay afloat. And bookshop, I think, .org is a, a venue that uh, links you to those. Um, it's also available as an ebook on Amazon. It's available on Audible as an Audible book. I'm very active on Twitter. It's just my name, uh, Sarah Kenzier. Gaslit Nation is available anywhere uh, you can find podcasts. And, you know, I'm, I'm very loud, so you'll probably run into me somewhere. But. And Patreon. Oh, if they Patreon, want to support yeah. more. Patreon.com yeah. slash gaslit to get uh, access to extra podcast stuff and, and keep us going because we are independent. Yes. And it's it's more important than ever because as we know, what is the me- what is the media doing? Yeah. If you want the uh, Epstein and Russian mafia dirt, then <laughs> yeah. help keep us afloat. Before, support uh, support Gaslit Nation. Can, so. Yes. It's really true. And I hope that I hope that in the future we can have more positive, optimistic conversations. That would be lovely, yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Until the end of the coronavirus, coronavirus I'm Sammy Fishbein, and this has Our been podcast the Stop Daily Podcast. Rally and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. The SUP is created by Sammy Fishbein. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and send your emails to SUP at Betches.com. Betches.